And I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, we'll be going to open up to 1 Corinthians 12 tonight, our last time in uh, chapter 12 during this study. Uh, we're going to begin by rereading what we've covered so far that will set us up for uh, our text tonight. And we're going to spend a, a time up front kind of talking about verse number 12, and then uh, we'll unpack uh, what the verses that follow uh, teach us about. I, uh, we've hit on a lot of these things already. This whole book has been about this. This chapter really um, has been the, the, the goal for Paul at, at the whole time he's writing this book. So when he began writing in chapter 1, verse 1, his, his destination was always chapter 12 and chapter 13. And, and I think that's going to become very obvious. Um, so if we hear a lot of the same things tonight or kind of uh, all the, the, t- the threads being tied together and kind of being brought to a, a conclusion or to a uh, culmination, that all should, hopefully that all come together and you kind of understand where we've been and and, and where we're going Um, as tonight and next week will kind of be the high watermarks for the whole book and and really the the purpose that Paul started writing this book uh, uh, to begin with. And, And what we have tried to do through our study of this book it's just be faithful to the text. Um, and uh, I didn't write it. Thank God I didn't write it. It's inspired by, uh, by the Lord uh, through uh, holy men that he moved to write the scripture years and years ago. My job as a pastor is just to try to break down and, and unpack and, and, and explain what God's word says to us all. And, and, and 1 Corinthians obviously has, is, is not just to the individual. The main audience, the main uh, target of, of 1 Corinthians is the church, which we, I think we've heard pretty clearly. And we're going to hear even more clear. Uh, tonight. So let's read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, and that'll set us up for our time together. Now concerning spiritual gifts or the spiritual things, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I made known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit or the good of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gift of healing by the same Spirit, to another the work of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So we've spent two weeks talking about the spiritual gifts, and we had a great time talking about those, and we'll spend some more time in a couple of weeks talking about the gifts even uh, once again. Uh, But 1 Corinthians 12 begins with a lesson on the spiritual gifts that are available to every Christian. That includes you. Uh, Paul walks us through what should be the overflow of the Holy Spirit's presence in and impact on our lives. As he explains spiritual gifts, he's saying to us that all of us have received the Spirit of God and the gifts that he wants to give us should be the overflow of his presence in our lives and the impact on our lives. But we find out in verses 4 through 11 specifically, the reason Paul wants to talk about the spiritual gifts was to help us understand their purpose, help us understand their intended use in our lives, which is that 
they might cause us to be a blessing to the whole body, uh, to build up the body. We often hear the spiritual gifts talked about um, to, to the point of exalting individuals who have the gifts. But Paul says, I'm not really here. Uh, to, I'm not, my intention is not to talk about how certain Christians are more holy or more spiritual. My intention on talking about the spiritual gifts is to explain to you all that the reason God gives these gifts is to build up the body. It's not about making much of the individual, but it's about building up the community. Uh, and, and I truly believe, and I'm confident in saying this, that, that Paul doesn't introduce these gifts to spark all these debates that have transpired for the last 2,000 years. Uh, that oftentimes we hear spiritual gifts brought up uh, in, in the idea of this spiritual litmus test, as in, well, what kind of gifts do you have? And that's going to determine how spiritual you are. Oh, do you have the gift of tongues? Do you have the gift of healing? Or can you, have you worked miracles in your lives? Or has God done these things through your lives? And people use this, this, this chapter to, to, as sort of a spiritual litmus test, as in to test, uh, you know, the substance of, of an individual. And, and I, I really don't think that was God's intention in, in inspiring this text. Uh, to, to, to be able to say to certain people, oh, you're really filled with the Spirit or if you have the Spirit, you'll exercise Him in this way. We talked about this. Every Christian can be gifted and should understand these gifts. But anyone who says that your level of spirituality is determined by how you exhibit these gifts, that they've missed the point of the Holy Spirit. Paul makes it very clear that every Christian has the Spirit of God. We, we spent a whole block of a sermon a couple weeks ago talking about that. Every Christian has the Spirit of God, no question. Uh, yes, if we have the Spirit, we have access to the gifts of the Spirit. But this text was never meant to cause this competitiveness that I think it has brought into the church and, and some in some uh, places, and I think that it kind of often creates this spiritual snobbery, if you will, and, and y'all know what I mean by that, kind of looking down your nose at other people who uh, don't really seem as spiritual as you, and that's just nothing more than self-righteousness, and Paul says, I'm writing about these gifts to say that yes, you are, you are all gifted differently, but it's the same God who is doing the gifting, and we need to recognize that it's him that has brought us together, and, it, and it's not the individuals that have certain gifts that that, that that are to be celebrated. It's the Spirit of God who has given all of these gifts, and, and most of all, has given all of us His presence. Uh, as we learned, this text is about reminding us that the gifts of the Spirit are meant to edify the body of Christ. So Paul's writing about this to the Corinthian people because there's sort of this talent show that's going on in Corinth. Oh, these people have these gifts and those have those gifts and those don't have any gifts. And it's sort of this, you know, hey, I'm better than you. And, and, and you know, some of you are, are not as good as me. And, and it really was draining the church of what it was supposed to be all about in, to begin with. And, and people that were just joining the church that weren't even aware of what the spiritual gifts were, that were just trying to find their place in, in, the, in the Lord, they were completely left out to lunch because they just, you know, were not even given a chance to catch up to people. So there was really kind of this elitist uh, atmosphere that was being created in the church. And, and Paul says, hey, there, there can't be any of that. Paul makes it very clear that the gifts of the Spirit were not meant to exalt the individual, but the gifts were given so that we might be a blessing to one another. So how we are gifted is so that we might be a blessing to the whole body. It's like Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse number 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve 
one another. So why have I been gifted? Why have you been gifted? So that we might serve each other, right? Not to say, hey, look at me. This is how good I can preach or how good I can teach or how gifted I am in these certain areas or look at what God's done in my life. Have you had an experience like that? Oh, oh I guess not, you know, to, to feel better about ourselves. No, Peter says that we've been gifted so that we might serve one another. And that's where the strength that God's given us is, is really meant to be taken us the whole time. So that leads us to the bulk of chapter 12, the rest of chapter 12, where Paul really leans into the message about how we fit into the body of Christ. Uh, you probably have a heading similar to the title of the message, uh, t- title of the message tonight in your Bibles uh, from verse 12 on. Um, there, there's probably some sort of heading that involves the phrase "one body, many members." It may say that exactly. It may say something like uh, the unity and diversity of the body amongst the members. I don't know what your Bible says, study Bible that you have, but but I think the idea is pretty obvious that the rest of this chapter is going to talk talk about how the body of Christ is comprised of many members. And you and I, we are those members. Now, I want to spend some time talking about, uh, I want to spend some time talking about what Paul means when he calls us members of Jesus' body. And then, I, then we'll talk about what he means by being members of one another. But look at verse 12. This is really the anchor verse of the chapter. For as the body is one and has many members. Now he's talking about the little, our bodies, our physical bodies. We have a, you know, we have one body, yet we have different members of the body. We have eyes, ears, nose, we have a mouth, we have tongue, we have hands, feet, so forth. So as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body. So he's talking about how you as a body have many members or many parts of the body. He makes a comparison. Uh, but, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. So he says the Jesus and the church is similar to how your body is structured. That there's one of you, but there's many members that make you up. So he wants us to understand that when we understand Jesus and we understand the church... It's on that line and it's in that analogy. Now, I want to explain that to you because that can kind of get over our heads a little bit. I think we all know where he's going, but I want to, I want to make you aware of where this all comes from biblically because this isn't just something Paul made up on his own. Uh, the, the question may arise, is he talking literally? I mean, is he literally saying that we make up the body of Jesus? I mean, Jesus is a physical man, so that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So he's talking spiritually, right? But but what about the church in a physical way? Is, is What kind of comparison is he making there? So I I want to break this down as clearly as I can so that we'll figure this out each step that we take. So all this stems from the nature of Jesus' death. So that's where it all begins. The way that Jesus died in the nature of his death, that set in motion this process where we take part in him and where we make up his body. But it all started with his death and something that Jesus did for us. And it, and it all kind of can be summed up in this one word, identification. So you've probably heard people say before that they identify, or maybe you identify with certain beliefs, that I identify as this kind of person politically. I identify as this kind of person morally, or this kind of person in, in society. As a Christian, you identify with certain beliefs, uh, you know, within the greater, uh, within the greater church. You've heard people say that. So this begins with this idea that Jesus identified with us 
when he died. And not just you and me individually. Jesus took on the identity of the human race in his incarnation, that he became one of us, but that wasn't enough to save us. Becoming one of us wasn't enough to save us. He had to become like us in our sin. But when he came to earth as a person from baby, from, from infant to adult, he wasn't a sinner because there was no sin in him. So to fully identify with us, he had to take our sin on himself, which is what he did in his death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake, he made him, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So notice there's an exchange there and this is the basic promise of the gospel, right? We all know this. That Jesus took on our sin so that we might receive his spirit and his righteousness. So literally there's a transaction that takes place. Jesus absorbed our sin and suffered judgment for us. And because of that, because he identified with us, we can identify with him. And it's not just a, an affiliation. It's it literally taking on a new identity, he took on our identity so that we might take on his. He absorbed our sin so that we might absorb his spirit and be absorbed into his body. And I, I use the word absorb because if you all know what it's like when a paper towel gets wet, it literally changes the makeup of the towel, right? It literally makes it have a different texture. And, and if, depending on what kind of how, how, you know, how the, the, the nature of the towel, it might even create a hole in it, right? Because the absorption changes it. So when Jesus absorbed our sin, right, he took on our sin. And we, we know that in his death, he atoned for it and he defeated it and he put it away so that we might absorb his spirit as in take on his spirit so that we might be absorbed into his body so there's two things going on there we receive him but he receives us do you see that that he, we receive his spirit but we step into a greater identity in him now when this is portrayed through the Lord's Supper. Now, this is why Paul spent all chapter talking about the Lord's Supper, about how we take the body of Christ, take the blood of Jesus, how that's a symbol of what happens when we're saved. And Jesus explained all this earlier on in the Gospels in John chapter 6. Jesus, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And, and I know that sounds very abstract and strange, but he's talking spiritually here. That he, he describes becoming a Christian as taking on a new identity through absorbing him, through receiving him, right? Do, do you see that? That he took our sin so that we might take on him. And it's portrayed through the Lord's Supper. We take the body, we take the, the blood, as in we are receiving Jesus into our hearts, into our souls. That happens spiritually, but the Lord's Supper is one of many, you know, uh, symbols that, that kind of plays that out in motion for us so that we can understand it. He goes on to say, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. But notice the idea here is that we are put into Jesus and that he is put into us. There's a new identity. And he summarizes this in, in verse number 63. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit as in, hey, I'm using this analogy of eating and drinking to explain to you what's happening spiritually. So, Let's make sure we understand this. Jesus took on our sin and received death in our place. We take on his spirit 
in his life by his grace. So that's what that's where Paul is getting is leading us to and building up this idea of the body of Christ. Christ identified with us. We can now identify with him and can now find a new identity in him. Our sin on him, our sin buried with him, now his spirit in us, his life in us. Colossians 3, Paul says that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Your life is now found in Christ. You have taken on a new identity. You have moved from one category to another. You are no longer in the old creation. You're in the new creation. And that's why in the New Testament, you see phrases like this all the time. You are now with Christ. You are now in Christ. Because this is speaking of our new identity. If you're in Christ, you are alongside many others like yourself in him. Which is why basically every New Testament letter opens up by addressing the saints who are in Christ. Which is the idea that there is this sense of community belonging in this transition from ourselves and, and our sin into Jesus. So I hope that makes sense. And I, I tried to explain it as, as clearly as I could. But I, I, but I want you to see the through line that, that the Bible takes us from. We are isolated and guilty in our sin. Jesus took on all sin and died for all. So by faith, we now receive him alongside everyone else. So we go from being alone in our sin to being together in him. So we go from being individually lost to collectively saved. Do you see that from one to the other? So now in Christ... Alongside every other Christian, we belong to one body. We belong to his body, spiritually speaking. We are his body, spiritually speaking, because we are in him and he is in us. At the same time, we've got to consider this other angle. Jesus said that he was building a physical gathering for those who identify with him and those who he identifies with. Jesus said at the kind of the big cornerstone moment for his ministry in, in Matthew 16, when Peter confesses faith, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And church there doesn't mean building. It doesn't mean temple. It means gathering, assembly, fellowship, community. It's the Greek word ekklesia. It means a body of like-minded, knitted heart people. So if we're saved, we're in Christ, and we are a part of his church, we are a part of his body. So not only are we his body spiritually, but our physical gatherings take on that meaning as well. So the one last passage I want to cross-reference. That, that I think really hammers this in a major way. Remember when the Apostle Paul was persecuting the church? And remember what Jesus said to him when he stopped Paul in his tracks? Falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, so notice what Jesus is doing here in this confrontation with Saul, who becomes Paul. Paul persecuting the church. Jesus does not say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my people? Because Jesus identifies with his people and his people are identified in him. So what does he ask? Why are you persecuting me? And then he explains himself further. When, when Saul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Jesus doubles down on it. I 
am the one you're persecuting. Because all those people are members of my body, spiritually and literally in the gathering that they make up on the church, on the world, in the world. So Jesus defines the church. He takes ownership over the church in a unique way that no doubt would influence how Paul would go on to write about the church. This same man who experienced this is the one writing about the church being the body of Christ. So if you, Jesus says, if you touch them, you're directly impacting me, which makes complete sense. If, 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 if the church is in fact the body of Christ. So spiritually speaking, we are the body of Christ. He's in us. We are in him. We belong to him. He is our belonging. And literally and physically speaking, our gatherings are the earthly representation of his heavenly body. He embodies us and we represent him. So so I know I rang everything out of that conversation that I could, but I wanted to make sure that you knew, and I want to make sure it's clear with scriptural evidence what it means when someone says the church is his body. What it means when the Bible says that he identifies with us and we represent him. We aren't just throwing words around that sound spiritual. These words matter and these words are intentional. And throughout the rest of chapter 12, Paul's going to walk us through what the idea is supposed to mean to us in practice. And I'm going to say some things that aren't, that are going to be preaching to the choir to you, but are going to reference people that maybe you know that that don't believe this stuff, and and you might take offense for them. But again, this isn't my words. This is the Bible, and and this is so important that we understand this. This is is black and white. It can't be interpreted in 15 different ways, I don't think. So we're the body of Christ. We're members of one another. Together we represent him. He identifies in all of us and has gathered us in one place. What does this say about how we should understand church and the seriousness with which we should handle our membership and participation? I, I don't think it's an overstatement, but chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is a Mount Rushmore level important chapter for every Christian. I don't think that's an overstatement. That if there's a Mount Rushmore of chapters that are important to you as a Christian, 1 Corinthians 12 has got to be one of those, one of those cha- chapters, one of those texts. Now, if you're already involved and rooted in a church, it just confirms and informs you. But if you or someone you know doesn't take this chapter seriously, it should correct them and direct them. Correct you or direct you. And I say them because if you're here tonight, I think you already agree with this, but this is still important that we understand why we believe this or why we say this is true. But let me, let me just say this, and I really don't think this is controversial, but it might be in some, to some people. This chapter makes Christianity an impossible practice detached from a local church. Again, I didn't write this chapter. I'm just telling you what it says. This chapter makes Christianity an impossible practice detached from the local church. Now, I know what you're thinking. Two things probably come to your mind. The first thing that comes to your mind is, well, I thought the Bible says that we're saved by faith alone. And it does say that. And I want you to see with me where it says that tonight. So flip over, keep your book, put a, put, put a bookmark here. Flip over to Ephesians 2 where I think you're all familiar with what it says. But I want to show you in Ephesians 2 what Paul says about our salvation and then what he says directly after it because it's important that we understand this because if, if I'm going to make a statement like this I, I need to back it up and I want to make sure that you, know, you see that tonight 
Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10 are the verses that I'm sure you've memorized before. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So clearly, we're saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus, what he's done for us individually on the cross. We're saved by faith. Faith alone, grace alone, that's it. And then, go, then Paul goes on to explain what has happened to us now that we're saved. And he explains it through the lens of Gentiles and Jews no longer being separated and how God is reaching both Gentile and Jew. And then down in verse 19, he says to all of us, having been saved, now I want you to listen to this and underline a few verses and a few words in here. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, as in you're no longer just some random person going about this life on your own with detachment from everyone else, without any connection to anybody else, just, you know, Fitting for yourself. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And what is the word? Members of the household of God. So part of our salvation means we've been removed from isolation and placed into the family, the household of God. Being built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple or into a holy body in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So are we saved by grace and grace alone, faith alone? Hey, of course. But what does the rest of the story say? That we are placed into, into, excuse me, the body of Christ which is manifested through the local church that God has built. And, and there's no other way around that. Now, the other question that you may have about that kind of statement that Christianity makes it is impossible apart from the church. What about those who, who are unable to participate? The, the disabled, the handicapped, the shut-in? Well, this chapter is going to address that. And it's going to basically say that the church should leave nobody behind. That if there are literally people who, not excusing themselves, but who literally can't be a part of the church because of physical disabilities or physical problems, it's the church's responsibility to make sure they're not left out. And if someone can't be, they, in their heart of hearts, they should want to be and they will want to be. But it's the church's responsibility to make sure they are not left outside. So that answers the two questions, right? What about salvation? Is it by faith and grace alone? Of course it is. But where does it take you? And what about those who can't or aren't, aren't able? Well, they shouldn't be left behind. Now, I know this is very definitive, but that's because there's just no other way around it. I'm not saying the church isn't often guilty of not attracting people, which is why he's writing this chapter, because Paul's saying the church isn't doing a good enough job at making everybody feel welcome. That's what he's writing about. But the responsibility on every Christian's back is that we take serious our membership, our participation. So back to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to begin to go through this pretty quickly. Verse number 13, he says, For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and have been made to drink into one Spirit, as in we have been brought together in our, he uses this very unique phrase, made to drink, made to drink 
of one spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but if you ever try to make somebody drink something, it usually doesn't work very well, right? Because you put it up to their mouth and they don't really operate the way that you pour. The way you're pouring does not always work out with the way that they're receiving, which is because we're stubborn creatures and we like to hold our own cups, right? God is telling us that, that this is our identity as Christians, joint participants of the body of Christ. Now, none of us like being made to do anything, right? But listen to what he's saying. When we become part of Jesus, we lay down our wills. And unless the Spirit lead us, we're going to quarrel with our own identity. Resisting the hand of God that's trying to feed us, literally. To consume this joint movement. Now, I would say this is hard to do, but it's really... It, it, it really should be easy uh, to, to re- it really is easy to resist the hand of God because we all do it, right? You think, well, how would you ever resist the hand of God? We all do it. We do it all the time. But it's a testament to how merciful and gracious God is because God does not force anything on us. When it says made to drink, that's God's perfect will, but we all don't cooperate with God's perfect will. And God does not force it on us. He gives us a choice. So while made to should be taken as God causing us, we also can take that as God remaking us and making this our destiny that we should want to be a part of and we should be anxious to partake in the work of the church and the body of Christ. There is in all of us a desire, a seed planted by the Spirit that says this is what we want to do. Now also notice that that Paul mentions uh, how uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free. He mentions how the church brings us together and gets rid of those social barriers, those labels that separate us in this world. This is why I think the church ought to resist specializing the church. I'm not a fan of, I'm not a believer in what I think in today's world often show up, and it's not as trendy as it used to be, but specialty churches, um, you know, we're supposed to be together, and we're supposed to figure out how to make it work for God's glory. Uh, Now, there might be reasons for special ministries, language barriers, outreach opportunities, but as far as having a church for this type or that type, segmenting us all together based on styles and interests and all that, that's just not really the way it's supposed to be. Uh, It's up to every church and every generation to figure out how to unite together around what matters and how to unite together around every possible hearer within reach. That's not always easy, but it's on us to figure out and to focus on Jesus and what he has done and what he can do and what he's called us to do and not be distracted by all the other silly things, less important things. If we start drinking from the same spirit that has saved us, that fills us, we will get in line with God's way of thinking and God's way of doing things, and we will make our agendas in line with his. Verse 14 sums this up pretty well. He says, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So Paul's saying, hey, we better figure out how to start getting along with each other. That we can't all just segment off in our own little specialties and our own little corners because he, he, make, he says it definitively. The body is not just one, you know, one, you know, everybody's the same, but it's full of many different kinds of people, many different members. I think often we get this idea that church is, the, the ideal version of church is a bunch of people just like us, right? And you might can find a place like that if you really look hard enough, uh, but, but, but we're missing the point if that's the way we envision church to be, and that's just not how it's going to be realistically. Listen to how Paul puts this in the most understandable of terms, verse 15 and 16. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I'm not of the body, it is therefore not, is it therefore not of the body? This is a kind of a silly question, but really this is a brilliant 
a brilliant analogy that Paul's putting together. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Of course not. That's not how it works. So play along, though, for a minute. If each part of the body could speak for itself, every part of the body probably would say, well, nothing is more important than me. Of course the hand thinks it's the most essential part of the body. Of course the eye thinks it's the most essential part of the body. Now, of course, eyes and hands and all that don't have their own way of thinking, right? But Paul's trying to personify those elements, those different members of our body. But see how he silences every one of these potential questions in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? So Paul makes it very clear, and he kind of gets rid of any sort of speculation that somehow, some way, we can all be the same and look the same and sound the same, and, and, and that's somehow God's will that's not going to work that way. It never is. And verse 18 speaks to both literally the body's design, but also the church's makeup. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, what are those last four words? Just as he pleased, as in just as he has designed. Now, do I believe that God is sovereign over every local church, every representation of his body? I absolutely do. You should too. The sooner and the more reliant we are of God's sovereignty in his placement, in his, in his design, the more we begin to see what God is doing and what God is building around us and inviting us to be a part of. Now, that's easy for me to say because I'm one of the people that makes decisions, but I don't do things lightly and don't make decisions lightly because I understand that my decisions reflect what God is doing. And, and if I'm not submitting to the work of God, then I'm completely working against what he's trying to do. So people in positions like myself and deacons and leaders of churches, that it's very sacred how we handle our leadership opportunity because we are, again, supposed to be reflecting what God has designed and what God is putting together. Verse 19 and 20. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? As in, if everybody, if there was only, if everything looked the same, then it really wasn't be a body. It would just be one member, you know, multiplied. And now indeed, and again, he, he, keeps coming, he keeps repeating himself because he wants you to understand it. And now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. Paul wants us to get this, doesn't he? Now, think back to our talk about the gifts. Paul's motive behind this is that nobody will think themselves to be elevated above another because of the giftedness they have, their own contributions, their own righteousness, because we're all on equal ground. The reason he's writing this chapter is in Corinth, they all, people are putting themselves above others and under others and they're judging each other and they're all thinking, well, you know, so did you hear about so-and-so? They've not been doing that well in their faith and they've struggled and they've backslid a little bit. No, I don't know if they're really part of the body anymore because, hey, if they don't look like me and talk like me and sing like me, I don't know if we should be letting them in. There, there was a lot of that going on in which it, it, it's strange, maybe it's not so strange that that stuff still goes on, doesn't it? We're all on equal ground at the foot of the cross, right? So what is Paul trying to do? Three things. He's trying to protect the integrity of the gospel. We talked about this Sunday, right? What's the, what's the gospel? Jesus died for our sin, all sin, right? He died for all sin so that all can believe through him and come to life through him. That's the gospel. He doesn't want it to be presented as if there's some sort of legalism or religion involved because there isn't. 
The gospel is that Jesus died for all. All can find life in him. Is there repentance? Yes. Is there change? Yes. Is there conversion? Yes. But the gospel is that Jesus is the one doing the changing. Jesus is the one doing the saving and don't get it any other way. But he's also trying to protect the invitation of the church and the atmosphere of the church. As in, hey, what is the church's message? How is the church atmospherically? As in, what kind of mood and what kind of feeling is there when everybody gets together? And it's pretty obvious to the outside world whether they are invited and whether the atmosphere says, hey, everybody's on equal ground. Paul knows that the biggest hurdle, the greatest challenge and temptation for the church is that it would drift away from the unity of common grace, as in the same grace saves all of us. Paul knows the drift for the church is to go away from common grace to exalted works, as in, well, you know, I know we're all equal in Jesus, and I have, that's just for the singing, but let's be honest, right? Because some of us, we're not equal, right? I mean, I'm not on their level. I've, I've moved past that. Yeah, I know Jesus' grace got me in, but I, because he let me in, I've, I've done some work, and I think I should be recognized for that. And I'm not saying you say that literally, and I don't think any of you say that literally, but a lot of people kind of, by their actions, project that kind of belief. Now, Paul's going to roll his sleeves up, and he's going to lay it down pretty bluntly and straight in these next verses as he wraps up. And he's going to force us to wrestle with this conversation and topic. And here's why I think you and I should take this very seriously. If we want to protect the church's integrity and invitation and atmosphere, we've got to be aware of our attitude as members and how we are being welcoming to those that may not yet be members, but can be if they come through Christ. While it may seem combative, it shows just how much is on the line and how Paul is, how, how much, how likely it is that any church would drift away from where it should be. So verse 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul's saying you can't say to your feet, I don't need you, because how are you going to walk? You can't say to your, uh, to your hand, I don't need you, because how are you going to pick anything up, right? He's saying there can't be this kind of class system and this kind of rank and file. It, it, it doesn't work that way. No much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now, that's, a ver- that, that's a two words that you need to underline in your Bibles for your own good. Because sometimes you might be the weaker element and you may feel discouraged and you need to be encouraged. And sometimes you might think that others are the weaker element and you need to be reminded what their place is. What does he say? Those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Those members of the body which think, which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. Our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. And you know what he's talking about there? Hey, there's some certain parts of your body that you always make sure they're covered. But there's still parts of your body. And he's not saying we should cover people up. He's just saying there's certain people, certain things on your body that you know need to be covered up compared to other parts of your body. But that doesn't mean you make them less, any less parts of your body. They're still part of you. So in the church, when there may be weaker, when there may be parts that we think are uh, uh, dispensable, things that are less honorable. We don't decide, hey, we're going to extract them from the body. No. We know that we might need to be a little bit more gentle around those parts, a little bit more delicate in how we handle them because we don't want to exclude them. We just want to make sure they continue to be a part of the body. 
He goes on. But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffer, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Paul is telling us that if someone joins the church or comes to be a part of the church having faith in Jesus, we cannot say to them or think of them as less than important than us just because they might not measure up in every area or category that we deem important. They may not be pulling the same weight. They may be missing some marks in certain areas, but aren't we all? He says there's no spiritual snobbery. There's no bullying in the spirit. Those parts that we think are weaker or dispensable or less honorable, we need to care for the most. Let me just breathe some air into all of us. And this is to me. I'm not judging anybody. I'm talking about to me. This is, this is something that I need to hear. If this approach feels unnatural to us as Christians, and I think it does sometimes, let's be honest. If this approach feels unnatural, it reveals to us that we feel more justified by our works than we do Jesus's. Now, that, that, offend, that, that hurts my feelings more than it probably hurts anybody else's here because I think sometimes, hey, I know what's right, God, and this is, we can't let this kind of stuff go on. But God says to me, are you, are you leaning on yourself? Are you leaning on Jesus? Because if you're leaning on Jesus, then the same grace he's given you, you'll extend to other people, and you need to understand that. The solution for understanding that this is the heart of Christianity is to remember how all of us were saved. The litmus test for membership is that we confess our sin and that we embrace our Savior. There's nothing else that takes that priority. Are there lines that are drawn that when people are clearly against the scriptures? Yes, the Bible puts measures in place for elders and leaders to take care of those things. But as for us as church members, verse 25 makes it very clear what our agenda should be towards everybody. That we should just care for one another. How should we treat one another? We should care for them. Care for one another. If someone's behind you in their beliefs, their convictions, their behaviors, their obedience, care for them, pray for them, model for them what you believe is right, but don't mistreat them, don't exclude them, don't cast them out, don't belittle them like what was going on at Corinth. Paul says their exposed weakness reveals why they need to be cared for more than anything. Isn't that what the text says? Those parts that are less honorable show greater honor to, the parts that are unpresentable give greater modesty to, Paul says those exposed weaknesses reveal that there's a need that needs to be met and a care that needs to be given. We often treat the church like it's some sort of spiritual elite club, don't we? And we're all kind of bragging and showing off and everybody's looking out at the parking lot and we all drive nice, you know, in a country club setting, everybody's driving nice vehicles and everybody's wearing nice clothes and oh, well, hey, you know, my, my, you know I just bought this and you just bought that and hey, we're all doing pretty well for ourselves. But, but that's not the church, Right? It can become the church. I've seen it. But that's not how the church is supposed to be modeled. That The church is not a spiritual country club. The church, if, if you want to use an analogy, it's a hospital. It's a rehab center. Because all of us have something holding us back. And you may be farther along in your recovery than other people. And if you've been here for 20, 30, 40 years, you shouldn't be a farther along, right? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you should be farther along. But that's so that you can help those who are not yet as far along as you. Right? 
We need to make sure the church always maintains this image, a place where grace is the floor. Paul was worried that the Corinthians might lose sight of that. And I think it's important that we remember where we come from and who we should always be. In closing, verse 27 through 30. You are the body of Christ, members of it individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, prophets, teachers, after that miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varied varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all miracle workers? Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No is the answer. But earnestly desire the best gifts. Yet I show you a more excellent way. Dot, dot, dot. And I think you know where he's going with that. But he's already teased it out, hasn't he? We are one body. We are his body. We are members all together and called to care for one another. Because the body will only be as complete as every members, every member are made to feel included and cared for. If we want to be recognized as Jesus' body, if we want to properly represent him as his body, we will care for each other and we care by sharing in his grace. That is what makes the church attractive. And as we talked about Sunday, does this require some uncomfortable situations, some, some, some situations that require prayer and discipleship and, and hands-on? with? Yes, it requires all that. But remember how this all started. It all started, it was all started by a man who made a name for himself as a friend of sinners. And they grumbled at him. And they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus said, that's exactly who I am. But let me tell you some stories about who the God that you claim to believe in is like. He's a God that when things get lost, he goes and finds them. He's a God who, like a woman who loses a coin, she sweeps the whole house until she finds it. Like a shepherd who loses a sheep, he leaves the 99 and goes and finds it. Like a father who loses a son. And while his son is still a long way off, the father sees him, feels compassion for him, and runs to him, and embraces him, and kisses him, and puts a big feast together for him, and puts a ring on his finger, and a robe on his back. That's what God is like. And that's what we as a church must always keep at our center. Because we are his body and if we are members of his body together we ought to make sure we are presenting a picture of Jesus to the world that we might would care for each other and maintain that integrity and that mission of our church church thank you for this time together tonight thank you for letting God speak to you from his word you guys already do this very well but we got to make sure we continue to do this the best we can because we will only be as full of Jesus as we are intentional in our caring for each other in our joint participation with each other as members of the body of Christ. The head is not more important than the foot. The, the modest parts are not more important, are not any less important than the parts that everybody sees and celebrates. We are his body together for his glory. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us and being uh, so helpful, Lord, 
because it's sometimes easy to get lost uh, and get confused when we're a part of something that's much bigger than us. So Lord, thank you for showing us in your word how we fit into your body, how we make up your body, and how we represent you as your body. Help us, Lord, uh, to, to, take, to take seriously and sacredly our roles as members of the body and help us to be sure to always care for each other, to be there for each other so that we might together grow towards and build up towards a full and complete body of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.